With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Blog Talk Radio. Because we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Yes, we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Ballard Radio. My name is Matt Weston, and tonight, after a very long time away from him, I'm joined by the biggest, fattest, strongest on the mall, BFD. Hey, man, how's it going? Woo! Been a while since I got the woo. Yeah. yeah, did you know that we haven't spoken to each other through the computer since about May? Wow, that's like three months, I think, if math is right. Yeah, I think so. And we were different. We were different people back then. We've we've grown a lot this summer. Uh, I feel a lot better. I feel a lot better. I almost moved to Central Pennsylvania if it wasn't for the family of the Totes Alzies. Yeah. So, how was your summer? What did you do these two months? Went to Colorado. Went to the Northeast for a trip, and worked like eighty hours a week in between. How about you? <laughs> Uh, I worked 40 hours a week. I went to the beach once. I went to Boston and D.C. for Memorial Day. And then I'm supposed to go to Montana in two weeks, but stupid Montana is on fire, or Glacier National Park specifically is on fire. And so I don't know if I'm going to be able to go there. But I have a plane ticket to Spokane, Washington. So I may drive to Yellowstone. I may drive to Olympic. Uh Pat told me that Mount Rainier is also really smoky. I can't go there. So I have no idea what I'm going to do, but all I know is I'm going to be away from, from like week one to week two because I have this vacation that I can't even really do at the moment. So, yeah, it's been all right summer, though. Dang. Yeah, and I told you I, I was in, you know, Brooklyn, and, and I tried to stalk LP and Killer Mike, and I was unsuccessful. And, you know, oh, well, maybe next time. You had tilted to the right just a little bit at least. Did you say that again? Did you wear a hat tilted to the right, at least a little bit, at least? No, no, I don't wear hats. <laughs> I feel that that's <laughs> Brooklyn BFT. He has his hat tilted. He wears a hat, and it's tilted to the right just a little bit. Yeah, no. I'm not cool enough to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody's from Brooklyn, you know. Uh, but, yeah, it's been a very long time, and it's about time we talk professional football again even though I'm still sitting here very afraid this helmet rule is going to completely ruin football, but uh, we can talk about that a little bit later. So tonight for the show, we're going to preview all three AFC South teams that aren't the Houston Texans. So we'll talk about the Indianapolis Colts, then the Tennessee Titans, and the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I got 20 minutes on the clock for each team, and we'll go from there to list of questions we may have uh, at the end of the show. But so first, I'm starting the clock with Indianapolis Colts. And Andrew Luck's back. Uh, he had shoulder surgery last year to fix an injury he sustained in 2015, which was that disastrous season. 
uh, where he threw like, I think 10 touchdowns with 13 receptions. It was never right. And was, you know, like a fringe top 10 quarterback in 2016, sat all of last year out. And this year he's playing in a preseason game. He can actually throw a football instead of just throwing like a pink bouncy ball. And so what are your expectations from Luck? Can he actually get back to the top 10 quarterback already this season? I, I don't. I guess part of me says no, because they're still going to have serious problems on that offensive line. And, and I know I'm kind of moving ahead, and I should with these questions we're going to talk about. I, I think they're going to still have some issues with, with protecting him and keeping him clean. Uh, and I don't know if you have the kind of the injuries that he did and you have the downtime and the lack of reps that he did over the past couple of years that you come back and you're immediately a top-10 quarterback. So especially now that there's much more competition in the league, you know, just look within – a certain you know guy in his own division, so I'm not sure he he's able to come back and be a top ten. But you know it's it's he's no Jacoby Brissett either, Matt. I mean I don't really take a whole lot of stock in the preseason, and I saw like what he did against the Ravens. I watched some highlights from it. He doesn't look the same. It's the first time he's played in a while. I think he'll I think he'll end the year playing at that top ten level, but I don't think he's going to start at it. Take him a little bit of time to to get back to that point, but I don't, I'm not really worried that he might end up, you know, getting back to where he was previously. And the Colts' schedule starts with the Cincinnati at home, at Washington, at Philadelphia, Houston at home, New England on Thursday night, at the Jets, Buffalo, Oakland, and they have five nine. So it's not a terribly difficult schedule. There's tough games there, but uh, it's not a miserable one. No, it, it's you know he's going to have probably have a field day against our slow secondary, so those will be nice to play us a you know a couple of times. But it's it's really not. So it's you know if you look back on Andrew Luck, he's always been you know I, I think really the reputation outshines what he actually does on the field in a lot of ways too. So when you talk about is he a top ten quarterback, well he's only been a top ten quarterback a couple of times. So it's you know I don't know if he's really that talented with the with the cast around him to go out and just become another top 10 or be a top 10 quarterback this year with everything that's once again going against them. That said, Frank Reich, I think, is going to do a much better job putting him, him into a position to succeed, especially as a former offensive coordinator with a, a good solid history of success, that uh, I, I think that Frank Reich's system is going to help him a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's especially one thing that Eagles do well or did well with Reich last year was create some really open uh, downfield throws. And Luck's one of the better, one of the best downfield throwing quarterbacks in football. And so I think, you know, that's a that's a big opportunity for them there. I think T.Y. Hilton's going to be a lot better this year than he was last year, playing on the slot with uh, Andrew Luck. I do think one of the problems, though, with the Colts during this year is that they have the cap space this year, near the cap space last year. And in football, we all have seen it before, where if you have cap space, if you have high draft picks, and you have a, a huge change in quarterback, you have a huge change in coaching, you can make the playoffs, you can turn things around really quickly. And this year, Chris Ballard did a lot like he did pretty much the same thing he did the year before where he didn't really invest and use those free agent dollars. Uh, do you think that was a mistake by Ballard's part for not spending actual money this free agency and trying to upgrade the roster immediately? Or did he do the right thing by kind of waiting and see what Luck's going to do, give him a chance to get back to playing well, and then potentially go all in on this team next year? Well, I mean, they were kind of in the same position as we were in, right? That, sure, you can go out and upgrade a couple positions, but you're going to have to go for Nate Solder and, or uh, Andrew Norwell. And I, I think that if you're the Colts, 
and you have that investment in Andrew Luck, I think it's almost exactly the same as us. Is maybe we should have gone out. We we got a couple good kind of not Andrew Norwell guys, but Zach Fulton and and uh, uh, sell them out. Oh my God, can't even remember how to pronounce his name. Is uh, uh, you know, we got a couple second-tier guys that are going to be good for us, but, but it doesn't seem like Indianapolis actually went out and did anything, like, worthwhile. So when you take that into consideration, at least we took steps. At least we tried. We're going to get the we-tried ribbon. I don't think the Colts even qualified for that. I mean, Austin Howard, fine, but the dude's, like, 31 years old. So you've still got some serious question marks. And I'm going to get an Austin Howard when we get to the offensive line a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm trying to think about who they added this year for agency, and I can't name anybody really at all. Uh, I know they added, well, they didn't even add Dante Moncrief. Moncrief went to Jacksonville. Uh, they added Eric Ebron. That's the only player I can name they added this free agency. They had like $55 million to spend. I did think the trade was really smart by trading down the Jets, getting three second-round picks. They added, you know, two, they had two new starting guards, lost Mewhorn for the year. So I think that should work out pretty well for him. But, I mean, it's pretty much the same team as last year, except it's going to be healthier. And that team last year, you know, wasn't you know any good at all whatsoever. Yeah. And you, there's, you look at the offensive line, you get to look at the injury histories of a lot of these guys, Jack Muhart, Brian Kelly. This is not an offensive line that's, number one, has any reason you can expect them to be healthy. And if you have to start swapping offensive lines in and out, we know what happens. Houston Texans fans, we know what happens when that goes on is that your quarterback gets into a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. And their offensive line this year is going to be Anthony Costanzo still starting their left tackle, Ryan Kelly at center, Quinn Nelson at left guard, Matt Fawson at right guard, Jack Newhart retired pretty recently, and then Austin Howard's going to start right tackle. Uh, BFD, do you think the offensive line is going to be good enough to have like, like not get murdered this year? Unlike every single year the year before, every single year prior, where his brains were splattered and his bones were broken. Well, I didn't even know about Newhart retiring, so I, I missed. I've been out of town so often recently. I guess I missed that one. So it, you know, it looks like um, they signed Austin Howard to play right tackle for him. They signed Matt Austin to hopefully be some some depth. I just still don't look at that line and think, oh, they're going to be great. I just don't see it at all. I think it's going to be the best offensive line they've had so far, but this is also a team that's had you know, just a miserable offensive line the past you know, couple of years. I know last year their pressure rate was 32nd. In 2016, it was 31st. Uh, in 2015, it was, they were 8th in pressure rate. And so it's been you know, terrible the last two years. But I think Clint Nelson's the type of you know, transcendent guard who's going to you know, yeah. really help out Costanzo. Costanzo's as mediocre as it gets as a left tackle. And he's 30 years old now as well. And then they, you know, I think Slauson and Howard just, I don't think that they're like super good players, but they're good enough. And it's such a big difference to go from Denzel Good to Matt Slauson. It's a big difference to go from Joe Haig to Austin Howard. And Howard's not a very good pass blocker, but he's a good enough, he's a very good run blocker. And so I think it's more about the addition, the subtraction with the addition of those players that's going to make a difference. So I think this offensive line can be, you know, mediocre to slightly above below average, but it's you know, Lux probably gonna get you know sacked. You know, maybe 16th most times in football this year, rather than like the fifth. And I think also part of that's gonna come out to how quickly he's gonna get the ball out, that sort of thing. But I think it's gonna be a lot better than it's been years in years prior, though. 
Yeah, and that's the biggest thing you just mentioned. The biggest thing that's going to help this offensive line is Andrew Luck and not Jacoby Brisket. And that's, you know, you talk about the interaction between the offensive line and the quarterback. That's also going to help because you're going to have somebody who's going to make quicker decisions. Theoretically, Andrew Luck's had the problem in the past, right? He's going to make quicker decisions with the ball and get the ball out, not take as many hits, not take as many sacks. That makes your offensive line look better. Yeah, I mean, you say that, but also, like, Luck's been the most hit quarterback. Him and Russell Wilson are the most hit quarterbacks from, like, 2011 or 2012 right. you know, until last year. That's the idea with Luck, but he's never played like that. And that's part of the reason why he's dealt with injuries is that the real wild card where he holds on to the ball last possible second, he takes these huge hits. I think that he's an enormous guy and that he can take the hits. But whenever you get hit, you know, 120 times in a season, 130 times in a season, it wears on you. And last year, uh, Kobe Brissett was knocked down 116 times last year, which is the third most in the league. And, yeah, that really hasn't changed all with the offensive line. But I do think things are going to be better this year. And Luck, I think, for sure has to change his game uh, moving forward as well, too. Yep. So, so we the, killed, I think we've beaten that one. We should move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, it's on my tongue right now. Uh, the last question I have on offense, though, is who's going to play running back for this team? They lost Frank Gore to Miami. He carried the ball at least 200 times the past few seasons. Uh, they have Marlon Mack here. They have Ronnie Turbin. I don't know if you might as well stepped up at all in the preseason for them, but do you think Marlon Mack's good enough to be a number one back on this Colts team? No, and it's, it, that's ridiculous. In this day and age where you can go out and find a guy who's pretty good to play running back for you, and Marlon Mack uh, uh, is hurt on top of everything else. Yeah, Robert Turbin has a four-game suspension to start the year. The second guy on the list right now is is um, uh, Kristen uh, Michael, if you remember him at all. But he's number two on their list right now. And, you know, he's, this is a guy who's, who has the speed to be a big guy out of A&M, but he has never been able to do anything in a starting role. So, you know, I talk a lot about the fungibility of running backs in today's day and age, and it's kind of, to me it's kind of embarrassing they can't do better than what they've done on their roster, Matt. Yeah, and I like – I kind of like Mac mainly because he's the only player I've ever seen stiff arm Jadavion Clowney, and that was, you know, some really spectacular stuff. Uh, I, know that, right. I know with Christine, Christine Michael, Jordan Wilkins is also playing running back for him. They both have like three yards to carry. Uh, and last we see him against the Ravens. And Wilkins is a rookie out of Ole Miss. And so, you know, who knows what they have there. But as much improved, I think the run, their run offensive, their run blocking can be. I don't have the running backs so to really take advantage of it. And so it's going to be kind of strange to see how that whole thing works out. Yeah, I think number one on the depth chart right now uh, – well, number two, I guess, would be Haim Hine. He was a fourth-round pick out of North Carolina State. I don't know a thing about the dude. Yeah, I don't know anything about him either. And then going over to the defensive side of the ball – the Colts, uh, they're going to switch from a 4-3 de- from a 3-4 defense to a 4-3 defense. And so with that decision, one of the casualties is Damon Harris. Harrison, and I don't know if he even got a job back yet at all. Or Jonathan Hankins. Jonathan Hankins was released from him. He was probably their best defensive player last year. Him and Jamal Shear were. And Hankins was released because they're going to a 4-3 defense. Who do you think on their defense the most from switching from the 3-4 to the 4-3? Wow, I, I just I, I don't even know. You're talking, you know, John Simon was a guy who they signed away from us. He's he's a decent enough guy, you know. He hustles. He's 
you know, he's being the best teammate he can be. So he gets kind of thrown out of the equation because he's a three, four linebacker. That's what he is. You know, you look up and down this roster and, and when you, I don't know about you, Matt, when I look at this team, when I look at the defensive side of the ball, as much as the um, offensive side of the ball could use a little work, you got Sheard as a defensive end. I think he's probably better for a 4-3 defensive end. You look at the rest of it. I don't know who actually comes ahead in this. I, I don't. I don't know either, and I don't think they really did a lot to ma- implement the switch. So I think Hank, I thought she was spectacular last year as an outside linebacker rushing from the edge, and he played with his hand down as well, you know, too. But he could do both. But uh, Sheer had five and a half sacks, nine quarterback hits, and fifteen and a half quarterback hurries last year, and so he was awesome at what he was doing. And maybe with the second year, they can cover better. You know, more of those hurries turns into hits, and those more of those hits turn into sacks. And all of a sudden becomes you maybe a 10 sack guy and people actually talk about him. But I don't really see anybody on this team benefiting at all from the switch. I think the switch was kind of strange. Uh, and then also they didn't do anything to add a bunch of personnel to play in this sort of defense too. So that whole thing's weird. I understand why they may do it going forward in the future. But as of right now, I don't understand kind of the purpose of it and, and how it's going to make this team any better this year. No, and who do you look at on that defense and think, hey, I really, I, you know, if I could trade for one guy on that on that defense, you look at it as maybe like Malik Hooker. I, you know, who's who would you actually want on your roster that's on this team? T.J. Green, maybe. Malik Hooker could. I mean, Sheard is a is probably the most underrated pass rusher in football. I think Malik Hooker is gonna be an All Pro. Like he's gonna be like Earl Thomas if Earl Thomas wasn't as good of a tackler. And like, he has that ability to cover the entire middle third of the field and affect passes from the middle of the field to the sideline as well, too. But, again, like from the switch from the 3-4 to 4-3, I don't know really who it helps at all. And their new defensive coordinator is Matt Eberfluss, who is some I've never even heard of at all before, but he's there to coach the defense now. And he's he coached under Rob Marinelli and you know, uses that 4-3 defense where you have, like, a really good defensive line that you constantly rotate in and out that goes, like, nine guys deep. Yeah, and with this one, we're talking like two. I mean, they're starting defensive tackles, Al Woods. I mean, they've got Sheard and Simon. And Simon's a terrible – I mean, Simon's a small end. I mean, talk about a poor match for a skill set. I just – I don't have – when I look at this defense, I think this might be looking at the worst defense in the league. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know where Simon's going to fit in at all all the team because he's too small to play defensive end for him. I don't think he's fast play that four three outside linebacker and even then like I I just can't complete, like fitting it all in this team. I could see him maybe being released before the season starts and going to the three four team. Maybe even coming back to Houston or playing for a team like Baltimore or something like that. Uh it's kind of like a, a filling guy there on the edge. But I really don't see where he fits at all in this team. Yeah. And then yeah that, that whole that whole decision was kind of strange. I don't know how that's gonna work out at all. I do think I kind of agree with you where I think this is going to be, you know, one of the, if not the worst defense in football, at least a bottom five defense. I don't see where they got any better. It seems, I think their personnel do, doesn't match as well as it did last year. And, you know, Malik Hooker's the only guy that you're really bringing back. And, you know, he plays free safety. And how much of a, a need is that with the team? He doesn't even have the, the cornerbacks to even cover well enough to really allow him to have that enough. Yep. So if Andrew 
Mike plays all 16 games, how many games do you think the Colts win this year? Six. I think the defense is going to be that bad. And I don't think – I mean, I, I realize the question is, if Lex plays 16 games, but being such a, a jerkwad – I don't think Luck plays 16 games. I just don't. I mean, there's almost no reason to, to believe that he can so uh, or will, that he'll survive. You can still have issues on the offensive line. You've got no running back to take the heat off the passing game. He's going to drop back a ton while he's in. I mean, is there any reason to think he's not going to lead the league in attempts per game? So I, I don't think he lasts 16. I think this is a team that, that is at best a 6-1 team with Andrew Luck, Matt. I, I think Luck starts all 16 games. I think they win. I would think I think they would win eight. Their schedule is super easy this year, and then Luck's good enough where he'll be able. I think he'll pick it up by you know week five or six or so to be able to carry. It. And then Lucky wins and some bogus wins and that sort of thing. But I think ultimately the defense is going to hold back. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm one of those people who has always kind of stood by you know, Andrew Luck being a, a very good quarterback being a top 10 quarterback. And I think it's a, it's a really big shame. It's a travesty that the Colts have kind of hurt his career as much as they have to this point. And never even at this point with him where we don't even know how, if he's going to play a whole season ever again, if he's even going to be good whenever he comes back. And it really is just a, it's a shame. It sucks. But I think just with how, again, with how easy the schedule is and how good Luck's been in the past. And now they've been able to just scrape together eight wins every year. He's played 16 games. I think they could, you know, win eight games again this year if he plays all 16. All right. And so, overall, how many – now we're including Andrew Luck possibly being injured. How many games do the Colts win in 2018? I think they win five. I think this is – oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, even – because I'm expecting Andrew Luck to probably start eight games. Uh, maybe ten, I guess. I'm, look, I'm pulling numbers – out of places that should not be discussed in, in a public forum. <laughs> but I think, I mean, if you take this team and you say, this is not Andrew Luck's team, and you throw the rest of that team out there and it's just such a garbage fire of trash, this is a five, this is maybe a three-win team, four-win team. So I'm going to go five. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to say six, and that's just because I think Luck's going to play like, I don't know, 12 games or so. But Again, it's it's a it's it's so murky, and I think that's kind of the problem with the Colts this year is that you don't know what to expect. You don't know how, how it all depends on how healthy Luck is. You have no idea, no way to gauge that. It's like JJ Watt Houston, or if he plays, he's going he should be great, probably. But you don't even know if he can play more than you know five games because it hasn't happened that long. Uh, but yeah, so I'm saying eight with Luck and six without Luck, and I really couldn't tell you how many games he's going to play this year. But I think if he plays all 16, I think he'll work his way up to being, you know, a really good quarterback again. So that's all uh, right. That's the, yeah, that's the timer for the Indianapolis Colts. And now we're, we'll switch lanes. We'll make a, a trip down south a little bit farther to Tennessee. So the kind of the big thing that kinds of this year, aside from, you know, add Malcolm Butler and Deion Lewis, and trade up in the draft and take Harold Landry was they made a coaching change and they made a coaching change after winning a road playoff game in Kansas city where they were down 21 to three. And they also lost in the visual round to new England and they fired Mike Malarkey. And I think one of the reasons why they fired Mike Malarkey is they were talking possible extension 
and Malarkey wanted more money than I think Amy Adams wanted to give him. And so after that happened, she fired him, and they signed Mike Vrabel, leader of men. Uh, so how do you think Mike Vrabel is going to do now he's boot-scooting boot and Cousin Levin in Tennessee? <laughs> how long have you been waiting to use that line? I'm just – I've read it, I think, been waiting like seven times this summer. Yeah, yeah, I figured. Um, so, you know, I, I think my opinion of Mike Vrabel is pretty well known. He was not a good defensive coordinator for the Texans last year. There's absolutely no reason to believe he's a leader of men. I mean, just none. It's just like some of these guys get this reputation as players and they can't drop it and it takes several years. But what you have to look, do is look at, you know, history, whether baseball, football, basketball, a lot of these guys here are talked about as being these savants, as players turn out to be really crappy managers. And the guys that you don't think that are going to be good, and the one that always comes to my mind first is Casey Stengel, is that these wacky guys who think differently turn out, turn out to be the best ones, turn out to be great managers. So I don't really see that Mike Vrabel, leader of men, is going to be like, like that cousin that you're in love with in Tennessee. I just don't think he's going to play that role. <laughs> Now, what he did do that was smart is he went out and hired Matt LaFleur as his offensive coordinator. And Dean Pease, even though, let's, you know, let's, let's be honest, that Dick LeBeau didn't work out for the, for the BESF last year or the last couple of years, Dean Pease, another old fart, uh, actually had a good defense last year. He's been able to adjust with the times a little bit better than, Dirk, uh, or than uh, LeBeau has. And um, so I, I think these are two really, really good hires for the team, especially when you consider Matt. Matt LaFleur plus Marcus Mariota and Dean Pease with that secondary. I think this is a great match made in heaven for both those coaches. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Mike Vrabel was leader of men because he was running up and down the football field before the first preseason game. And Mike McCord did the same thing in San Diego. And all the great coaches here to, to go out there and do that to show that they're, they're ready for the game ahead of them. And I, I, don't, I mean, Vrabel was a terrible defensive coordinator. And it's not even like – obviously the injuries were the biggest reason why the defense was bad last year. But he just didn't call plays that made any sense at all. Like he didn't put his guys in, in good spots. Uh, I think a perfect example is him playing press man coverage against the Jaguars in like week 15 where you have a slow secondary going up against guys like Marquise Lee, uh, Keelan Cole, D.D. Westbrook, all these really fast little guys, and they just got burned on drag routes over and over again. And he, you know, failed to understand. He failed to realize that his stunt, he didn't call good stunts. His blitz were pretty boring. Uh, you know, nothing really worked out at all for him. But I think, like, if you, if you believe Rabel is going to be a good head coach, you're going to believe he's going to be a good head coach the way Jim Har- John Harbaugh has been a good head coach, where he, you know, calls challenges up the right way. He gets his boys fired up and riled up to play. He manages things well. He game plans well. He mitigates well. You know, if he can be a competent manager, I think he'll – and also if he can, you know, add to the actual coaching of the positions as well too because it does seem like he was a good position coach before he took over the defensive coordinator role. And so I guess in, in that mold, if you remove all the tactical, you know, decisions and that kind of intelligence and he mitigates it to LaFleur and Pease and they both do a great job, I think Vrabel can be a fine head coach. But if you're looking for him for, like, game planning expertise and play calling expertise, uh, the, he's not going to be the right guy for that. So I think he can be fine if he's fine in that sort of hardball sort of mold. Yeah, and the expectation, and this, the weird thing is, is the expectation with that inherently is that he is going to be able to 
offload some of those decisions. He's just going to be able to be that high-level guy. I don't see Vrabel not taking a lot of control of the defense, and I mean that in potentially a play-calling way at some point, too. In the same way we saw Bill O'Brien, no, he's going to keep calling the offense no matter what because he's the head coach. And so I can kind of see Vrabel picking up on that and going, hey, my ego is at stake here. I'm going to take that over. So if he is able to um, allow P's and allow, especially, well, he's not going to touch the floor, but if he can allow those guys to work independently and do the high-level stuff, then I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, and I see what you're saying. I have more of the thought that I think Vrabel is going to be come. Kind of, I think he's going to finish that role naturally. I think he's going to be a lot more hands-off when it comes to, you know, play calling that sort of thing. Because like he last year in Houston, never seemed like he particularly enjoyed wearing the headset and calling plays and sort of thing. I think he'll enjoy a lot more just yelling at people and uh, giving motivational speeches, you know. Yep. No, I agree. That's just, totally. that's just my, my character study of reading the subtext forum. Uh, I know you mentioned Pease and LaFleur. If you forgot or if you don't know, Matt LaFleur coached in Washington and Sean McVay. He was the offensive coordinator of the, same, of the Los Angeles Rams last year. I didn't even say St. Louis Rams until I die. I've, I, they were St. Right, Louis right. for, for what, you know, 26 years of my life, whatever it was. I think I'm just kind of stuck with that. Same thing called Roger San Diego. And he was the offensive coordinator there with the Rams last year. He was, was the defensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens for the past couple of years. And the Ravens were, you know, consistently, continually – a top 10 defense last year. They were second in defensive pass DVOA as well. And I kind of look at the time too, like they're such a weird mishmash of talent where they have pretty good players just everywhere. They don't have like any really elite top players. And with the coach that has Milwaukee's offense with Dick LeBeau needing a post-it note to run his shoes on, like I think a jump in coaching can really elevate, you know, a good collection of players that just, haven't I think they've really like haven't met their expectations and performance hasn't been as good as it should be. They've won games, they've won nine games the past two years. I think they've won more games than they should have, but I think with these two guys coaching the performance better. Uh and if that doesn't make any sense, that's kind of one of those things where almost people are thinking wins don't mean as much because the schedule's so short and that your performance more, you know, kinda of means more than actually how many games you win and you want to kinda of gauge how a team does in the future. So I do like both these signings a lot. I don't know how good LaFleur was. I think McVay was the main responsibility for the offense last year. But I think they'll be much better than they were off last year when it comes to coaching this year. And, you know, the guys that could be, you know, what they need to go from, like, a week nine and seven to a strong seven. Yeah. And so when you start looking about looking around at what these guys do best and Matt LaFleur does kind of have a history. This is going to be, I think really his first season with the headset calling the plays. So uh, you have to give a lot of what has, you know, what he has accomplished in the past to other people. I mean, you just have to be honest about it, Uh, but he was the quarterback coach for uh, Robert Griffin, the third. So this is a guy who's got experience and has learned the hard way about mobile quarterbacks. And he took Jared Goff, and he was able to do some good things with Jared Goff in in L.A. So I I really – this is the guy, you know, I'm not a big fan of Bill O'Brien. Everybody knows that. Matt LaFleur is the guy I wanted. Uh, I think that he has the imagination. He understands the game, how it's played today, how the game is evolving. And these are important things. Dirk LeBeau was a great head coach – or a great defensive coordinator for many years. But he fell off the face of the earth because the game has changed. 
It's changed tremendously, and it's going to continue to do so. And mm-hmm. I, to me, Matt LaFleur is today's 2018 football. So I think he's going to do a lot with Marcus Mariota. We haven't seen anything in the preseason. Everybody's running their vanilla stuff, right? The only thing we're going to see is, oh, this team's going to a, from a 3-4 to a 4-3. We're not going to see really any schemes. We're not going to see any of that stuff in the preseason. So I'm going to be really interested to see how they come out because this is a team that's, that's number one, built upon running the ball. Jack Conklin, Taylor Lewin, Lewan, Ben Jones, Quentin Spain, signing Xavier Sofilo. This is a team that's really based its offensive line on running the ball. And so they're going to be asked to block a lot more and do different things. So what is Matt LaFleur going to do? I can definitely see LaFleur. Look, this is the, you're talking the Kyle Shanahan tree. So you're talking play action. You're talking a lot of fakes. You're talking moving the pocket. And Marcus Mariota is a guy who throws pretty well on the run. I don't think we're going to see Marcus Mariota with another season of more interceptions and TDs because LaFleur is going to take advantage of his very elite skill set and use them correctly. And they're not going to give freaking uh, DeMarco Murray the ball a million times at a 3.6 yards per carry while well, he retired anyway. But you're going to see a very different team than what you saw in 2017. And I think, you know, one of the things that we talked about in the offseason, and I'll quit my monologue and let you speak here in a moment, one of the things we talked about in the offseason is there is nothing more frightening than the prospect of the BESS actually making a change at the head coaching position because of the talent they had on the team and how it was being so poorly used. So now, all of a sudden, wait a minute, this is a team that has a good secondary that's going to be made really good by Dean Pease. It's going to have an excellent, outstanding, potentially, quarterback with Marcus Mariota being coached by Matt LaFleur. This is suddenly a very scary team, Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and I think the problem with you know Malarkey going back kind of like the fifth Mariota and LaFleur was wasn't that meth mouth didn't work. It worked, but the problem was that he just ran the plays because he felt like running them. He didn't adjust his game plan at all to his opponents. You know, for I think a good example was whenever they played you know Houston and they're riding the ball at JJ Watt, Woody Merciless, and JV on Clowney over and over again instead of trying to attack that secondary deep. And it wasn't until, you know, the second half in that Chiefs, Chiefs game where he realized, hey, they have the worst linebacker core in football. Let's just give them a Derek head over and over again. And that's what happened. They ended up winning that game. So he was really, you know, hard-headed. You know, his offense worked in spats. It worked whenever he went up against teams that couldn't run the football. And it was also too, like, first and second down, we're going to run the ball heavy. Yeah, I'm gonna spread the ball out, make Mariota throw in you know, difficult situations like third and seven, three receivers sets, and only two of your receivers can even get open at all. So, just by having if Lafleur switches the offense up to this kind of outside zone bootleg, I think that's great. But I think more important for this offense is him just calling plays that attacks the defense specifically and takes advantage to you know the mismatches that they're going to have because they're going to have mismatches because of the the talents they have in the offense and. Yeah, you know, some of the stuff that Malarkey did against certain teams was just like just so stupid, you know. And that's how just some guys are; they just like fail to to understand what the other team is bad at and going from there. Yeah, watching Mike Malarkey's offense was like watching a really bad computer football game, like from 1989. That first down and ten, pro set. Okay, they're going to run the ball. Second down and seven, pro set. Okay, they're going to run the ball. 
it was that sort of thing. It's like you knew they're going to run on first. You knew they're going to run on second. And then all of a sudden, it's a completely different offense. It's like they went and drafted an entirely different team and put them on the field for third down. And I don't know if you know what's coming. If you know they're going to run the ball in first and second and throw it on third because they're third and long. If you're you know if you're stopping the run, then it's just kind of easy. It's like okay, well I'm just going to put my run set in on first and second. You know we'll just bring in the Dime package on third. I mean, this is like football for dummies from 1989. Yeah, for sure. It was super, like it was unconventional in a way, but it was so it was super conventional, for you know, like just predictive, uh, just about every drive that they have. And so last year, Mariota, the biggest difference in him is that his play plummets in the red zone. He went from being one of the best quarterbacks in the red zone to one of the worst. The Titans also dropped from first in red zone touchdown rate in 2016 to 15th in 2017. And that was mainly because Mario became a below, became one of the worst red zone passers in football last year. He also threw 13 touchdowns to 15 receptions. And he had DVO at negative 3.3% last year. Uh, so what do you think was up with Mariota last year? Was it just the offense? Did he get worse at things? Did defenses pick up on, you know, better ways to, to prepare against them? Why was why did he have such a down year last year? I mean, I think ultimately watching him play, I just think that it was the coaching. You're just not really giving the guy a chance. Um, they're they're not. Like we talk about it all the time not putting your guy in a position to win and to in a position to succeed. You, you got Delaney Walker on that team. That guy should be fed the ball. And now watch this year. Matt Lafleur loves his tight ends. Delaney Walker might be the best tight end in the league this year because he is going to get fed the ball a lot. He had 74 catches for 800 yards last year, three TDs. Guess who they weren't looking for in the red zone? So they're going to do things differently in the red zone to get him the ball, to get Corey Davis the ball, to get these bigger guys who can create a little bit of room, who have the girth to to make uh, catches in the red zone. It's going to be a big difference this year between Mariota's red zone play from 2017-2018. Pat? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I went back and watched all his red zone plays last year, and Walker was thrown to a lot. I think the problem was that Mariota didn't have the accuracy that he had previously. And also the weird thing about him in the red zone, too, was his release was really slow. Like, that was one yeah. of made such a great passer was he had that snap release and the ball's out. And, like, he was really precise. And last year he threw a couple passes, should be intercepted in the red zone. He missed open receivers. Uh, I don't know if like, – I, I know what you're saying about Walker – I think he'd possibly be more efficient and catch more open passes, but he was still targeted 111 times last year as their most targeted receiver. And so I don't know how much more, you know, Walker can really be targeted this year. I do think it's going to help Rashard Matthews out a lot this year. He's a great screen receiver. He's also really good in the slot too. Uh, the real big question mark is Corey Davis. And, you know, Davis's talent really isn't questionable, but he's just been hurt last year. And he never showed that, that talent he had in college all last year, mainly because of injuries. I think if LaFleur can get anything out of Corey Davis, that'll be enormous for this team. And then also with Taylor Taylor, that's the type of guy like a really great offensive coach is usually able to do a lot with when it comes to end of rounds and faking end of rounds and going deep and screen passes. And they have a team that blocks screen passes really well too. The Times have one of the best receiving blocking teams in football. Uh, one of the fun things I watched them last year year before was seeing just Rashard Matthews, you know, pancake safeties, playing ball crushing cornerbacks. Uh, Taylor Luan, you know, pulling out to outside linebackers. But they did a good job blocking downfield. I think that's that's another advantage LaFleur can you take take advantage of whenever he starts calling plays this year. 
Yeah, and, and one guy, I just want to uh, talk about him, Taewon Taylor. I think if you're looking for a guy who's going to make a serious jump in their counting stats, he is that guy. I, because you're, you're talking the, the uh, that slot receiver role in the Kyle Shanahan offense has a tendency to collect a lot of targets and a lot of touchdowns. And Taylor is just so short area quick, he's going to hurt a lot of people this year, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and last year he had 16 catches on 28 targets. And they also signed Michael Campanaro. I know that's a guy Brett liked whenever he came out. He was drafted by Baltimore and was hurt for love of the year. And, you know, whenever he kind of came to our attention from him, like I really liked his video from college. And so he could even be a possible slot receiver for them as well too. And we, we yep. also can't forget that the Titans did sign Blaine Gavick to their backup quarterback. Yeah, we can't forget, which is, we forget oh, that. Oh, I'm so happy. I, I'm not, I won't <laughs> say I'm going to actively root for Marcus Mariota to get injured, but I am rooting to see Blaine Gabbert start this one game in Tennessee <laughs> this year because it's just, it's just too beautiful. You know, the universe is too symmetrical and clicks and pace perfectly sometimes. Just think, Blaine, or Blaine, Blaine Gabbert, Jacksonville Jaguars, BSF in the same career. Oh, I mean, if that were me, I would just be like looking for the biggest jug of, of, of bleach I can find just to chug it. <laughs> uh, I know we haven't talked about their defense at all, but their defense has you know a lot of talented players. It has Adoree Jackson, Logan Ryan, Malcolm Butler, Kenny Byard, Terrell Casey, Brian Arakpo, Derek Morgan, Wesley Woodyard had really good last year. Um, you know, there's a lot of talent here. So my question is, who do you think have the most sacks plus hurries plus quarterback hits for their pass rush? Brian Arakpo, Harold Landry, Derek Morgan, or Jarrell Casey? I'm going to go with Jarrell Casey, which I realize is probably not the – not really the position you expect that to come from. But what I see Casey really excelling at is playing that J.J. Watt role, especially in sub-packages. He's, going to be, he's just so difficult to stop. And I think he's just going to get a lot of opportunities – uh, to get to the quarterback on third down, second longs type thing, that he is going to do a lot of damage. Um, Harold Landry, the one thing that worries me about Helm is I kind of see a lot of Malcolm Smith in Helm that just doesn't have the size. Uh, you know, Malcolm Smith has turned out to be a, a huge bust for the Eagles, and he just got released the other day, I think, by somebody uh, who really cares at this point. But he's just not a big guy, and so I worry about that. But Jarrell Casey can beat you with the quickness. He can beat you with his strength, and I think he's going to really hurt some people this year. Because Dean Pease is, is a guy who likes to use that defensive end position in a scheme to get to the quarterback, and Casey's going to really excel there, Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I know he's going to rush a lot for the three and five, so I think Casey's going to get doubled a good amount. And also, there's pretty good interior blocking in the AFC South now with the addition of Kelmonte and Fulton in Houston with Moses and Smith and Slauson in Indianapolis, and also in Norwell, and whoever they're going to start, right guard in Jacksonville. So I'd, I would say I think Casey has the best skill, but I think I'm going to go with Brian and Rackpo just because he's slightly better than Derek Morgan, and uh, I think he kind of fit that Terrell Suggs sort of role where he's going to you know, rush from the edge just about every single time in pass rushing situations. Yeah, I mean, he's the most – Rakpo's the most logical. My problem with Poe is that he's 32 this year, and I don't see him playing the entire year. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, he played in Tiger last year. They were both really good. You know, they were kind of they had about the same production as Clowney and Merciless had together in 2016 when they were last healthy. And then also last year, when we look at past defense DVOA, the Tennessee Titans had a past defense DVOA of 18.9% 24th. How big of a jump do you think they can make with the addition of Malcolm Butler and Dean Pease becoming the defensive coordinator? I, I don't think much about Malcolm Butler. I think there's a there are reasons why he was he was sat down against the Jaguars. I don't know what the latest conspiracy theory is, but if you watched him the previous weeks, he was getting torched, and he was especially getting torched. He talked about it. and the dude's fast, right? But he was getting torched on drags and crosses and that sort of thing. And I think that's why he did not play against Jacksonville. It's just he, he was such a bad matchup against them. So, you know, and you talked about it earlier, D.D. Westbrook and, and those guys were just scorching uh, the Texans. So I'm not really high on him. I got to say he's 28 this year. So he certainly kind of hit that end of being a, a very good cornerback in the league. And, and was he ever really, except for maybe a year or two, really a, a very good quarterback cornerback. So I, I think you're going to see a Dory Jackson is the guy that I'm absolutely most excited about to watch in that secondary this year, because he, he did pretty well as a rookie, and I can absolutely see him making a huge jump this year. Matt? Yeah, I know, I know Jackson was the most targeted cornerback in football last year. Uh, and he held, you know, he, play, he played okay. He held on, you know, considering all of it. One of my favorite things last year was, like, you really, he's, su- he's super fast, and Dory Jackson is. And then you watch Tyreek Hill just outrun him in a straight line. And I really had no idea how fast Tyreek Hill was until I watched that uh, playoff game last year. But what do you think they finished in, DBA, in past even DVOA this year? Because they are a good run-stopping team. They finished 24th last year. Could you see them, you know, 12th, 10th, anything that high at all? Oh, that's right. I forgot that you asked the question. I was too busy dreaming about him. Uh, so, yeah, so they're 24th in DVOA last year. I think they're going to get considerably better. I think one of the things that Dean Pease does very well is he schemes his defensive backs. Um, you just look at the job that Baltimore did last year. They were fifth in DBO. Uh, I'm sorry, they were second in DBOA second. in passing rank. And and so when you see that, and that's kind of Pease's specialty, right, is getting that defensive secondary. So LeBeau disguised his rush. Pease disguises his coverage. And I think you have a decent skill set in the secondary aside from Jonathan Cyprian. And what's his – is he out for the year? He's, he's out for the year. He's towards ACL. Okay, yeah, yeah. I couldn't quite remember. So as uh, he wasn't going to be a good fit in that scheme anyway. But with Bayard, with Jackson, with Logan Ryan, with Malcolm Butler, oh, and of course, who can forget Bryce McCain? You've got a real lot of talented defensive backs that can do a lot of different things back there. And it's, I think they're going to go from 24th in 2017, I would say like about 14th. Yeah, I think they can be mediocre as well. And their pass rush is underrated too. And I think it's also they they needed a fourth rusher. And I think with Harold Landry, they're going to have that fourth rusher. And then going back to Pease too, it, you know, I think it's a it's a good comparison Baltimore secondary to Tennessee's Baltimore. You know, Eric Weddle is a really great player, but you know, Brandon Carr is old. Jimmy Smith was old with them. Ladarius Webb was old with them. They didn't have some you know elite cornerback play at all last year, but Pease was able to to scheme you know both their pass rush and their secondary and still you know really take advantage of. Uh, offenses. So how many games do you think the Titans win next year? Uh, I don't want to answer this question. I hate you. Hate you, hate you, hate you. I, I think this is a 10-win ten, ten team, and I think this is not only a 10-win team. They won 
nine last year, but I think this is a good 10 win team. You're, you're going to start see a, a squad with some good talent. That's going to take advantage of that talent. And I hate saying this because I hate this team so freaking much. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to go with 10. I think, I think Matt LaFleur makes that sort of impact on Mariota. And I think Dean Pease makes that sort of impact on the defense. And with a lot of good places in, or a lot of good pieces in place, they're going to be that much better. And I hate it. Yeah, I think they win nine games again, but I think they're going to be a good nine-win team, unlike a, a below-average nine-win team like they've been the previous years where they won more games than they probably should have. Yeah, I mean, they won nine games last year, but that was a six-five-win team. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think they're going to win nine games again, but their performance is going to be a lot better right. yeah, yeah. than it was yeah, a few yeah. years before. Because they won nine games last year, nine games the year before that, while you're kind of exceeding what their respective wins should have been. So the, the last team we have here is the Jacksonville Jaguars. And last year, the Jaguars pounced from 12th in defensive DVOA to first. Their pass defense shot from 15th to 5.6%, the first at 27.6%. Uh, Baltimore finished second, like I mentioned earlier. They finished negative 15.4%. So I guess the, the Jaguars were 12 percentage points better on defense than the second best team in pass defense last year. And so make this happen. The Jaguars by the second, second easiest defensive schedule in football. They forced 33 turnovers, which was second in the NFL. They had the second fewest adjusted games loss. They finished first in sack rate, their pressure rate. So BFD, do you think their defense drops off at all this season? And if so, how much? I think definitively they drop off. And the question is how much, because you've got some competing things in, in play here. You've got, they're not going to get 33 turnovers again, right? Turnovers we know are one of the most fluctuating stats in, in football. They're not going to get 33. We can kiss that away. Uh, they're not going to uh, get to the uh, quarterback as often as they did in 2018 either. Uh, you can pretty much count on that as well. Saxonville was probably a one-year thing, and we talked about some of the reasons. You've got better offensive lines in the AFC South. When you play six games out of your 16 against your – your division, that's a big deal. Um, but the competing factor against that is Jalen Ramsey, A.J. Bouye, Helvin Smith, Fowler, Dante Fowler, uh, Miles Jack, are all another year older but heading into their prime years. So you've got a, a very young defense in a lot of positions that's going to get better. So – they are going to drop off, but I don't know how severe it's going to be. If they were first in DVOA last year, I think you can still look at them and say, hey, this is still a top eight defensive uh, DVOA team, Matt. What do you think? Yeah, I think they're going to jump, jump off probably from like first to maybe fifth. I think it's still going to be a really great defense. And I think a lot of these factors led for them to have such a big gap. But I think even without some of those factors, they would have had you know, a top three pass defense at minimum. And you took what was a, a young defense with, you know, Ngakwe, with Fowler, with Miles Jack, with Telvin Smith, with Jalen Ramsey out of the year. But also last year they had the two best defensive free agents available in A.J. Boye and Calais Campbell. And then they also have Malik Jackson on this team too as well. And so when you, when you take all those factors and you combine it, uh, there's, there's a big reason why they jumped all, all the way to first. And that talent is still here, and that talent's probably even better this year. And so I think moving forward, uh, they're going to be, you know, just, like a, still a really great defense. I don't think we're going to see them go from, you know, first to 15th and 
the type of leap that would be disastrous for them. So I think they're still going to be really good. I'm not super worried about this defense next year, but I don't think they're going to have probably the, the best pass defense in football, maybe just like the fifth instead. Yeah, and I think that's reasonable. They lost, they did lose Aaron Colvin in the offseason. Um, so I think that's a, you know, a reasonable hot take on the whole thing. Yeah, and I mean, like, I don't even know if Colvin's good because he was playing with, you know, Ramsey and Boye on the outside. Right, and so right. I think it was a much easier lot. It's probably the easiest lot you can have as a slot corner. And Colvin's also been, you know, bad in the little bit of time he's played this preseason as well, too. So we'll have to see how that goes as well. And then they also added a guy from Oakland who played for Houston, who had that heart surgery. Uh, DJ Hayden's going to play slot corner from them as well this year, too. And so I don't know what the difference is between the two and how much of impacts they make, but it's not like they're replacing Colvin with the UDFA. Right, yeah. And and Hayden might be better suited for the slot position. And, you know, that's the big deal with Aaron Colvin, right? Is he going to be suited for the outside uh, cornerback position? Well, is Hayden maybe going to be a better fit in the in, on the inside? So legit questions there. But if you're looking at that defense, that's like the only black hole in the defense. Maybe Blair Brown at linebacker, at Sam, and then your third cornerback. But you look at the rest of the defense, and it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, and they also, their first-round pick, I'm so bad whenever it comes to college players, I'm watching college football. But their first-round pick was, oh, man, it sucks being this stupid. Uh, and I forgot. He's that guy I looked it up earlier. Guy. Oh, Taven Bryan. Uh, he's, so he's going to be like – he's also like a three-technique, like pass-rushing tackle as well too. So whenever they go into pass-rushing situations, they'll have Jackson, Bryan, Ngakwe, and Calais Campbell. And you don't – they don't have to blitz all either. And then you're having to go against Ramsey and Boye, and you know, their safety play is good enough as well too. So, I mean, I, I just think that – I understand for the regression. There's the context for, you know, regression and, and drop-offs. And I think the context here for Jackson is that this team is too talented unless there's some major injuries to, to have a disastrous fall off for this team to not be another great defense again next year. Yeah, and that's the other big thing about that defense. They they uh, lost nobody last year. They had almost no injuries on the defense last year. Telvin Smith missed a couple of games. That's it. They were mm-hmm. very healthy last year. And that's, you know, there there's luck. There's skill behind that. It seems like the Houston Texans are injured pretty often. And Jacksonville was healthy all year last year. Yeah. Yeah, and also I kind of think, too, like this offseason a lot of players have been really adamant about only playing on grass and moving all artificial grass from the field. And the Texans practice on artificial grass. They play on artificial grass. And I wonder if that has anything to do with this well, too. Because, you know, I, the players are super adamant about that, adamant about getting rid of all turf, you know, moving forward. I mean, don't you feel about the same way? <laughs> I mean, as, as somebody who just only moved like five steps of play, I, just, I kind of like the turf because I felt like I was on the moon. It really didn't affect me at all. All right, yeah. I, I just always felt like playing on the turf was – because almost every turf was different, right? Yeah. It, almost every fake turf was different. And so this one's going to be spongy. This one's going to be like running on concrete. And so when you start thinking about I'm going to make a cut – Wait, and you're you're almost you almost have to consider. Wait, I'm running on concrete. I'm running on sponge, and so you almost need to make different cuts. So mm-hmm. I've I've never liked astroturf. Give me the grass. Give me the stuff I can smoke. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, I mentioned Boy and Campbell just a second ago. 
So last year, Calais Campbell had 14 and a half sacks, 16 quarterback hits, 37 hurries, and four disruptions. And disruptions are pretty much passes deflected to the line of scrimmage. AJ Boye had 20 pass deflections, six interceptions, gave it 6.3 just yards per pass, and had just a success rate of 55%. And those are all, you know, range from like, you know, 7th to 20th out of all cornerbacks uh, that met their minimums to be ranked. So the Jags defense already had, already had talent, ton of talent. Uh, they still do. So who's your favorite player on this defense? Uh, just because of I'm just a, such a big fan of the freak, and I've been such a big fan of his for years, Callie Campbell. And uh, But second place on that is Telvin Smith. I absolutely love watch, watching Telvin Smith play football. He's fast. Uh, there was a play last year where he ran down a running back from behind. I just love watching the guy play. And Miles Jack is going to be right up there next year, too. Once he's completely healthy, I think this will be his first year. He's 100% back. He's going to be a blast to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, mine's Boy and Ramsey kind of combined as one player. Just like I mean, Ramsey's so physical and, uh, and, like, he's so upright. And, like, nobody can really push on him at all. And then Boye has such good footwork. And they both play the ball super well, too. And they're just kind of fun to watch together as well. And also, for like one million times, the Texans should have franchise tagged A.J. Boyer in 2016. <laughs> it was – or 2017. It was a disastrous decision. It was the easiest decision to make. And even if they had more cap space, they could resign, and they should have franchise tagged them. And uh, it was one of the – you know, one of the dumb Rick Smith decisions. He made a bunch of good ones. He also made a ton of bad ones. And that was one of the just kind of like absolute disaster ones. Yeah, it's funny how all of a sudden Rick Smith was a bad GM after like you know a day before he was fired. He was a he was the best GM in football. It's really weird how that happened. Yeah, it is strange. Uh, also, so moving on to their offense. So their offense last year really switched. It was more of a, a shotgun vertical attack passing offense, and they changed it to running the ball a lot for now yards on heavy sets and then throwing a lot of quick crossing routes and then on third down time board like hey man punting is good we have a really good defense you don't need to make bad decisions with the ball and also you're fast too and when we have five receivers running downfield you can it and our guys covering passes downfield you have spots to run so go ahead and run for it and so their whole offense changed it was better last year it was somewhat confident unlike years previous and so this year to double down this offensive strategy they signed Andrew Norwell to play left guard. They re-signed Marquis Lee. He was the most effective drag route runner in football last year. And they let Allen Robinson and Allen Hearns go. So what do you think? Do you think this is the right move? Should they have got rid of Nichols and maybe gone after Kirk Cousins? Should they have kept Allen Robinson and not signed Andrew Norwell and kind of had that deep passing receiver? Uh, what did you think about what the Jets did on offense this year? I, I tell you what, if I, if I were the Jaguars, I would have just backed up the truck to Kirk Cousins and say, have at it. I'll re- rework any contract I need to because I think I'd get two Super Bowls out of this team over the next three years. Super Bowl victories, I should stress, because you've got a lot of guys getting old. Cali Campbell's 32. Malik Jackson, I think, is 30 this year. So a lot of your interior guys who are real disruptors, and those two guys are real disruptors, uh, are, are going, going to be retiring pretty soon. I would have given all the money to Kirk Cousins. Signing Blake Bortles is kissing your cousin at best, and that's the cleanest way I can put it. Uh, I, I get why they re-signed him. I would have never done it. I would have said, Kirk, have at it. Do you, oh, 
what do you think about, you know, this part of Florida? Would you like it? So um, I think that was a mistake because I think that there, there's one thing that you can never forget about football, and that is that flags fly forever. And I think they really missed the opportunity by not signing Kirk Cousins to get that flag flying forever. And I think Minnesota now is in that position. They're, Minnesota, you look at them and say, wait a minute, they're going to be pretty damn good. If you're mm-hmm. Jacksonville and you sign Kirk Cousins, you're like, oh, my God, who's going to beat them? So yeah. um, big, big loss for them. Um, as far as what they did offensively, and I'll shut up in a moment, Matt, I think what they did is they're really trying to fit the offense around what Blake Bortles does well. Now, one season, Blake Bortles could push the ball down the field, right? And I think his, his, uh, it was the sophomore campaign. He could push the ball down the field. He could get the ball to Robinson and Hearns down the field. Now they kind of understand, well, that was kind of a one-trick pony kind of thing that year. The dudes know Brock Osweiler. We're just going to have them throwing drags and plants and, and that sort of thing and just let our little dudes like D.D. Westbrook and, and those guys do their thing and, and create a lot of yak. So in that perspective, I think they're doing the best thing they can to put Blake Bortles in a position to win. But I'm not sure if it was for the best interest of the team, Matt. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of off and on on it. Like, I understand why they did it. I, also, there's kind of some merit to, you know, Kirk Cousins probably not being as good as, you know, what he's been before, you know, especially the amount of turnovers that he has had. And so that whole sort of thing, too. But, I mean, I think their offense worked last year. I think if their defense stays great, I think that they are probably the, the favorite in the AFC in a way because they should have beat the Patriots in the AFC championship last year. And so also going back to last year, too, their offensive numbers to end the year, kind of like whenever they start making that offensive switch. Their DVOA against Indy on was 21%, 43% against Seattle, 32% against Houston, 2% in San Francisco. And they get 47% against Tennessee and they rest their starters. And they get 28% against Buffalo in that 10-7 win, 53% against Pittsburgh, and 6% against New England. So their offense did get better when it made the switch. It wasn't you know, great or spectacular, but I think they know what they want to do and that's run the ball, lift them out mistakes Bortles can, let their defense do everything it needs to do, and then kind of help from there. Uh, but as we know, you know, watching Houston 2016 is a, a good example. If you play football like that, if anything bad happens, it's hard to come back from it. You have to play you know, pretty much perfectly for 60 minutes, and if you have penalties or turnovers or fall behind, you're kind of screwed. And so when they get magnified the playoffs and also the better division, you know, those one-possession wins can really kind of swing things. So – I understand why they did. I don't know if I would have done the same thing, but I think their offense could be better this year than normal. And after playing it for an entire year, they can mitigate. And I think it should be able to mitigate the losses they're going to have a defensive efficiency. I, I think you completely nailed this. I mean, this is going – if you're looking at a team right now that most looks like a team from the 1970s, it's the Jacksonville Jaguars. Run the ball, play great D. Run the ball, play great D. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're talking about run the ball. They ran the ball with some football last year. They ran 33 times a game. And they also faced the heaviest passes in football. Leonard Fournette ran the ball a lot, but he wasn't super effective at running the ball when he did. Uh, are you expecting to ha- for him to have a better 2018 season than what he did last year? What I would like to see, in, if you're a fan of the – Glitter Kitties, I should add. I mean, this is what you don't want to see if you're any other team in the division, is you want to see somebody take a lot of that pressure off of them, whether it's Corey Grant or um, T.J. Yeldon. You want to see somebody else get some of those carries and give them some more breathing time. Uh, 
that's what I would do if I were that team. Uh, I think he was asked to do too much. I, I really do. So the other thing I would do with Fournette is I would get him the ball out in space more often is uh, and use him a little bit more like that. I just think I just don't think you can ask players in today's game to take that many hits. Guys are too big, they're too strong. You got to give them a break, Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fournette last year had 268 carries. He also had 48 looking for targets, 30, 48 targets, 30 and then catches. he had 30, yeah, 36 catches. So I mean, you're looking at a guy who had almost 300 touches of the ball. You know, obviously you don't get tackled in every play, but that's a lot to do. Uh, I. No, I think it's going to be a lot of the same this year, but I think it'll be better just because the offensive line is in there. The normal is like the sixth start in football. And uh, so I think, I think that's really going to help. But I would like them to see Corey Grant get involved more. And same thing with Yeldon, too. Yeldon's kind of an underrated outside zone runner. And it's kind of weird that they kept him here for another year as well, too. Yeah, and he averaged, I mean, 5.2 yards a carry last year. It's, it's not that he's bad. And he was what a second round pick, isn't that he was funny a second to think about now? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, I think you got to give those two guys a little bit more of a chance and let Fournette be fresh and be big. Let him make the big plays. Mm-hmm. And so the the last question I have here for the Jaguars, aside from the very last question, is that the Texans right now have the thirty first toughest schedule or second easiest. The Colts have the twenty eighth toughest projected schedule. The Times have the 26th toughest projected schedule. And the Jaguars have the 21st toughest projected schedule. Uh, do you think this is going to have an impact on the division race at all? And are you kind of worried that with you know Jacksonville having to play those first place teams, it's going to be maybe the difference between winning this division or having to fight for a playoff spot, or also even falling out of the playoffs entirely? I, this is a crappy answer, and forgive me, please. Talk to me after week one. Talk to me after the Texans play at New England. And, or, you know, let's talk about it after that. Because I think that game right there is just going to be such the trend thing. If if Houston is able to win against New England, I think that really shakes things up. And I hate to be to put all my eggs in that particular basket. But you look at the, the Glitter Kizzy schedule and you look at our schedule, and they're, they're similar in a lot of ways. Everybody's. Schedules are pretty similar in a lot of ways. It's not like we're playing in the NFC South, but people are playing Philadelphia. So you've got some really tough matchups, and you've got some easy matchups. But if one team is able to win a game that makes a difference, and I think it's that first game for Houston. If Houston loses that game, I think that's going to be a bigger deal than not. Um, I, I will say, yes, the difference in schedules did make a difference. Yeah, I I don't think I I think the Jaguars are just good team to that that gap isn't going to be you know big enough. I think it's going to be you know close, but I I just I like the Jaguars a lot this year, and I kind of like whenever teams know who they are, they're doubling down on it. And the defense has too much talent as well too. I know we're going to do a preview on the Texans entirely next week, but I think for Houston, it's going to kind of come down to the health of their pass rush, and. I mean, that's one of those things that's really kind of hard to predict when you have guys who have injury history and those Clowney and Watt have had. Uh, so I think that's going to be kind of a big thing about this division, but I don't see the schedule being that big of an issue, again, because mainly because I think Jaguars are too talented of a team for you know, only maybe like a 1% difference in DVOA to have that dramatic impact on them. 
Right. Yeah. God, I had something I want to say and I forgot it. Never mind. It happens sometimes. So, how many games mm-hmm. do the Jaguars win this year? I think they win 10. I think this is a very solid team. They've got, uh, you know, we talked about their strength of schedule. It's not that harsh. They get to play Indy a couple times like we do. Um, uh, they get to play Miami. They get to play Washington. They get to play the JEST, just, just, just. Um, they've got some very winnable games on their schedule. They're going to win quite a few games, but I think 10 is going to be their limit. And I think Blake Bortles is the reason for that because there's going to be at least three games that they fall behind by two scores and they just can't come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. And their schedule, so they have to play at Kansas City and they have to play Pittsburgh and they have to play, I guess those are the two different games that they have to play, but to start the year off, they play at the Giants, then they play New England, then they play Tennessee, then the Jets, then at Kansas City, then at Dallas, then Houston Week 7. Playing Philadelphia in the the United Kingdom as well this year. Yeah. Yeah, so I have them winning 11 games, and then they're going to be one game better. I think the defense is going to have a slight drop-off, not a, a drop-off from like you know first to 10, so maybe a drop-off from first to fifth. I think they're too talented. And this is all, you know, injuries can always kind of change that as well, too. And I think offensively they're going to be good. And I think they're going to be better this year. I think it's going to slightly bridge that gap between the two. They know who they are. And, you know, a lot of times when teams, like, understand their identity and what they do well and kind of stick to that, that usually works well whenever you have not talent that they have. So I have them winning 11 games. Yeah, they they really do a good job. I mean, if we talked about Blake Bortles. They've really done a good job on the offensive side, understanding who Blake Bortles is. You can't really fault them for that part. You can fault them for not signing Kirk Cousins, but you can't fault them for saying, wait a minute, Her, Robinson Hearns, hey, the great wide receivers don't fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot, of cro- a lot of crossing routes again this year, a lot of quick passing, a lot of Bortles running for third, uh, converting third downs. Uh, as long as he doesn't like have – Interception rate of seven percent. I think on offense they're going to be, you know, better as well too. Do you have anything right. else about the AFC South you want to add this year on any of these teams that we didn't touch on? I don't think so. I think I talked enough. Okay. Are you worried about the helmet rule at all now that we're getting closer to Week One, or do you think this was something no. overcalling it because of preseason? I my my opinions on the helmet rule are not completely formed yet. Um, I will say this is that I know how I was taught to tackle and it's different from what I've seen in football for the last 20 years. I, I, I believe I understand what they're doing with the helmet rule. And uh, I think it's a good idea in a lot of ways, but there are certain situations where it's just not going to work. If you're, if you're a linebacker and running backs coming through the hole, I don't know what else you're going to do. Um, it's the it's the plays, especially where it's the defensive backs who are using their helmet first. Linebackers using their helmet first, not in the hole. Those are the stupid ones. You know, when when uh, Ryan Shazier got hurt last year, that was a really stupid tackle. So I can see the point. What I can't see is the application. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I can I can see the point. I understand that. I think you should get in the penalties that they have for the bad helmet-to-helmet hits. I think you could possibly even review them and throw guys out of the game for making some of those tackles. But I just think it's impossible to, you know, tackle even with your shoulder or, even, you know, 
make these plays or even be a running back and not be able to lower your head every once in a while for yards. Uh, and they'll actually play the game well. And I think it's mainly because these guys have been playing for 20 years. If you want to force this rule change, maybe at you know the high school level, the college level is level younger than that, and then maybe kind of slowly, gradually change this, I could see it. But it's sad, and it's also it's such a fast play. And you're also having a huge new amount of referees. I really just don't see them being able to referee it well, even too. And so I think the whole thing's a mess. I hope I'm wrong. Hopefully they kind of tone it down as the season starts. But, uh, yeah, that's my, my big apprehension heading, heading into this year. It's not Deshaun Watson's health or J.J. Watt's back or whatever. It's this kind of rule change. And hopefully it's an exaggeration and everything's going to be okay. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. Because, again, I would like for this to happen. Ryan Shazier's tackle last year where he was paralyzed whatever state he's in now was really stupid. So yeah. I can see the point of what they're doing. So it's I, I want it to work, but I, it also needs to be logical and still fit with the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And we also didn't have any listener questions at all tonight. I guess everybody's uh, you know busy at $2 you call us, whatever you do on a Tuesday night. But we had one, somebody asked if you expired or if you put the panda suit to loan. And so I guess uh, it really wasn't a question, but I do believe you're going to be you know, on the show throughout this year. We're going to bring it back for the 2018 season. And we just needed some, you know, some time away from each other. We spent too much time with each other uh, last year and the break was much needed. And yeah, I'm excited for football again this year, as long as the helmet roll you know, doesn't completely ruin it. What the hell are you saying about me, Matt? Do you not <laughs> love me anymore? We need some time apart. For me to understand how much I care about you, I needed some time away. Son of a bitch. Oh, hey, my it's God, a good thing. I've never been so disc. Uh, whatever. It's going to make our love stronger. Um, anyways, that's all we got for tonight. We'll be back on live next Tuesday instead of Wednesday. I forgot we were doing this on Wednesday. We'll be on live next Tuesday instead, and we'll preview the Texans entirely and kind of offer some more additional predictions, you know, player of the year and that sort of stuff. And the week after that, we'll preview week one as well, too. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll talk to you all next Tuesday night live at 7 p.m. Central. Thanks you again for listening. My name is Matt Weston, and thank you for being on tonight, BFT. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.